for the last two and a half years that my wife and I have been moved home from Arizona, I get lunch with my 96-year-old grandmother once a week. And it's awesome because the staff here has Fridays and Saturdays off, most of us do at least. And so by Thursday noon, my brain's, you know, melted anyway. And so like when I get to go to lunch with my grandmother, it's just like great reprieve from a long and productive week. And, you know, the, the contract between grandmother and grandson is that she always pays, which is awesome for me. So she'll take me to Panera or she'll take me to like Piata or Chinese food or whatever, right? And then occasionally we'll eat at her house. We'll sit on her back patio and look at her pond. I've caught a lot of big bass in that pond. And it's awesome. It's awesome. And I'm amazed each time I walk into my grandmother's home, I'm amazed with her hobbies. And three of the four are pretty normal. The first one, drawing, painting, reading. It's this fourth one I don't understand. And any, any of you in here that, why do people like puzzles. I don't get people who like puzzles at all. I walk into my grandmother's home. She's got multiple puzzles going at once. I don't get walking up to like 10,000 pieces. It'll take me 10 months to complete. I don't get, this is the picture of the puzzle set that I walked in to my grandmother's home last week. And that's just her kitchen table. There was one on her dining room table, one on her coffee table. She's got like three projects going at the same time. And she like loves them. And this is what happens. I walk into my grandmother's home, and she says something to the effect of, hey, Luke, uh, that, that puzzle right there, that's a pretty tough one. Would you mind putting a piece in? And I'm like, oh, gosh. All right. So I walk up to the puzzle piece, puzzle, and I'm like, and honest to goodness, church, I do honestly give it like a solid nine seconds of effort. I really do. I, I work really hard for that amount of time before I'm like, okay, let's eat. And, and then we go eat. Maybe once or twice a year would I actually fit a puzzle piece into the puzzle? But that, that's not my favorite part of being with my grandmother. I'll be honest, it's so sweet because it's, it's a time machine, right? In conversation, we just, we, it's a blast from the past. We rewind to when I was 10 and 12 and 5, and we just talk about what it was like to be a kid with, with her and, and my grandfather, and it was just, it was, it's so sweet. And they used to live in Broderpool. They had a good bit of land. They had a couple horses and a big garden. And it was just awesome. And I remember like stealing raspberries and blackberries off my, my grandpa's garden, in my grandpa's garden. And I just, I loved it. I loved it. This is actually a picture of my grandfather. This is Papa. And that's Mama, the grandmother that's now 96. And Papa died in 1999 of Alzheimer's. He was 91. He was, he was pretty well up there in years. And my grandmother was only 78. I was only 13. My siblings were only 15. Uh, The year after that, my grandfather on my dad's side went to heaven. So at 14, I was grandfatherless. And, And I'll just be totally up front with you and just be really candid and raw and human in front of you. That was really disappointing. It was really, really disappointing to have both of my grandfathers out of my life before I actually got to know either one of them. And and part of that's just like a practical age thing, and I get like my wife's, all four of her grandparents are still young and and here and present, and that's great, I kind of get that. But it was really sad. I, I specifically remember my grandmother going to my grandfather's nursing home 
and then to hospice and watching my grandfather's mind deteriorate because of Alzheimer's. And he wouldn't remember me, he wouldn't remember anyone else, and he certainly wouldn't, and then eventually he wouldn't remember my grandmother, his wife. It was pretty tough. It was hard. I was just a kid, and I didn't know anything except what I felt. But man, was I disappointed. Not until I became an adult church did I realize that it was my grandmother's had much more of a right than I did to feel disappointed and sad. She's the one that lost her spouse, her best friend. Yeah, I lost her grandfather, absolutely. My mom lost her dad, absolutely. Those things are true. But my grandmother lost her spouse, her best friend. I'll tell you what, we creatures, we humans, we don't handle disappointment well, do we? We just don't. When sadness and disappointment are the meal in front of us at dinner time, we don't handle that very wisely, very well. We typically try to compensate for it. We introduce a series of coping mechanisms to try to feel better from the disappointment. We look to all kinds of ways to make that disappointment a little less painful. I mean, contextualize this for your own world. Maybe you have lost a spouse recently, and that tragedy is, I do not minimize that by any means. Maybe right now it's just like my marriage is deteriorating and collapsing slowly and or has already collapsed. Or maybe you're watching a child walk away from God after all the years that you've spent trying to invest into your child. Maybe right now you've got a relative that's sick and you're not sure what, why. The prognosis is not good. This is so disappointing. Maybe right now you're just like putting all of your chips on the table. You're saying, why doesn't my work recognize the value I bring to the table only to let me go? Or perhaps you have. Maybe you have lost a spouse. I know several families in our church right now who recently went through seasons of losing a close loved one and they were very young, way too young. Man, we do not, creatures do not handle disappointment well. We, we humans especially. Man, sadness is a strong feeling. Disappointment is a strong sensation. And what in the world does this have to do with Ruth? I aim to answer one simple question this morning. The question is this. What is God's message to the disappointed? Because does he even, does he hear us cry out? Does he, does he have an opinion on the matter? Is he even listening? Does he even care? Is he going to do something about it? I think that when we look at the story of Ruth, we see that God has an answer to those questions. And that he has a message for the disappointed. So this is what I would like to do. I would like to introduce to you a little bit of context to Ruth, our final MVP, whose story is remarkable. And if you've read Ruth or read Ruth and prep for the weekend, you've got a good grasp on her story. If you didn't, that's okay. We'll catch you up here. But basically, the book of Ruth takes place during the time of the judges, which was a horrible time for Israel. Apostasy was rampant and regular. Faithfulness was scarce. But God was able to preserve his covenant with Israel, even through just a few families, Ruth's family being one of them. And it's remarkable how her story starts and ends, and I'll just be honest, her story starts terrible. 
But God's got a really cool message in here for us, and I know he's got a message in here for you this morning too. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read, make some comments, and do that a few times. So would you please open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, or power up. It'll also be on the screen if you prefer that. As you do, as you do I'll say a brief prayer. Jesus, we know that... Uh, we know that you show up in our lives in powerful ways, in ways that we can't even perceive. And so this morning, we give you an open heart, an open mind, and expect for you to do the work in our hearts that we could never do for ourselves. We offer that to you in love. Amen. This is Ruth 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived about ten years, both Malan and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Not a great start to Naomi and Ruth's story. I mean, let's be honest. They probably moved, well, we know that they moved because of the famine in Bethlehem to Moab, probably for agricultural reasons. They could do some farming, actually make a life for themselves, make some money, and so forth. But when they get there, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. Why again, God, did you bring me here? <laughs> Why, God, are, did you allow this to happen? We had this great future vision, this, this awesome future laid out in front of us, and I don't understand. Why did you allow that? Okay, a little bit of retribution then. Her two sons, Malan and Killian, marry Orpah and Ruth, not Oprah and Ruth, but Orpah and Ruth, right? So 10 years of marriage, and if anyone here has been married for 10 years or longer, you're just, I mean, I'm only six years in, and I feel like I'm just now getting my stride. Still a novice for sure. For only the two sons to die. What is happening? Why? Why, why, is this, why does God allow such tragedy? Naomi loses her husband and then her two sons. Young Ruth and Orpah lose their husbands. There's no mention of any children of any kind. So the last three characters in this story are the mother-in-law and the two daughter-in-laws. Like, you don't even see that on reality television. Like, that is really, really tragic and, like, sad and a bummer. So, how do these three characters respond? There is a variety of responses from these three. And I think that there's a lesson in here for us. This is skipping down to verse 8. Then Naomi said to her, her two, daughter two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait around until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me 
At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you will go, I will go. Where you will stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you will die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Anyone want to guess why the book of the Bible is called Ruth and not Orpah? Right? Because the variety of responses, right? So Naomi almost throws in the towel. Orpah does. Ruth does not throw in the towel. She doesn't throw in the towel. Determination on Ruth's part was the bridge that gapped disappointment to destiny. So if I can sprinkle a little bit of application in the middle of this, church, don't throw in the towel. Don't throw in the towel when your circumstances arise and they are less than ideal. Don't throw in the towel when disappointment is your sensation of the day. Don't throw in the towel because there is way more at play than I think we can perceive. Before we get into what Ruth's destiny is, I need to give us a quick 60-second history lesson because if I don't, some of this might not make complete sense. In verse 1 of chapter 2, you're going to see a word that says relative. That word relative in the NASB translation is rendered kinsman. It doesn't really matter. What matters is the Hebrew word there is ga'al. Everyone on three say ga'al. One, two, three. Ga'al. Yeah, it sounds really weird, right? So ga'al, it means to redeem or redeemer. There was a concept in Israelite culture called kinsman redeemer. This epithet was based in a law in Leviticus 25. Track with me. Leviticus 25 had a law that said if a person were to sell land, a family member had the right to buy that land back in order to preserve land for the family. Okay? There was a corresponding law that also applied to the actual families. That is, if a husband and a wife, if the husband died without first having a son, it would be the husband's closest single male relative's responsibility to then marry his widow and redeem her. That is where we get the epithet, Kingsman Redeemer. So when you hear that phrase, now you know what that means. It's all about preserving land and family. So when you hear the word relative, you can think Kingsman Redeemer. This is chapter 2. Verse 1, what is Ruth's destiny here? Now Naomi had a relative, kinsman redeemer, on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, so he was Jewish, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was there from the clan of Elimelech. 
Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, "Uh, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning until now, except for a short time to rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and drink from the water jars the men have filled. It's like an episode of the Bachelor Bible version. I mean, you can just kind of sense the chemistry here between Boaz and Ruth and like Naomi's and Kerr. I can just picture the mother-in-law and be like, yeah, he owns a field. Go talk to him. Right? And so Boaz notices Ruth from afar and he's like, who is that young woman? Who is that young woman? Now, what we could do here, because there's so many teachable elements, is we could easily teach from the surface and say something to the effect of, man, the the men in this new generation need to rise up with integrity and character and manliness, just like Boaz, and that's how we ought to treat women in this new generation. And although that is true and appropriate, that's not the point of Ruth. We could say something like, you know, this, this new generation, we need, to, we need to work hard with our hands and produce an, a product. We need, to be able, we need to earn a living. We just can't expect things to come to us. We have to go out and work really hard. And all that's appropriate and true. That is not the point of Ruth. There's way more to the story. There's more to the story. There's more to Ruth's story. There's more to your story. I want you to think about this for a second because this is so important. Just when you think, just when you think that it's all over, just when you think that your life is completely over, your, disappo- your circumstances dictate disappointment and regret, and you're looking forward and you see no vision, you have no vision for your future. You feel like God puts you on, took you out of the game, put you on the bench, and now you're watching everyone else play and you're sitting on the bench. And that is, I mean, that is part of the Christian walk. Sometimes we get on the bench, we're like, why is everyone else living out their calling but me? I propose that we're listening to the wrong voice because in the story of Ruth, we're about to see something radically different. I think that sometimes God takes us out of the game, not to place us on the bench to watch, but God takes us out of the game, put it on the bench for us to have energy preserved for overtime. And I mean that. This is just one of the scenarios where we see Ruth treat Boaz with integrity and character and kindness and gentleness. There's a few more flirtatious episodes in the book of Ruth. They end up getting married. They end up getting married. They end up having a son. There's more to the story. There's so much more to the story. As a matter of fact, I propose two plots that we currently see in the book of Ruth. And they're amazing. And if you don't get this, like track with me, if you don't get anything this morning, get this. The subplot of Ruth. 
As Boaz was Ruth's kinsman redeemer, Jesus is ours. You've got to understand that our King Jesus is a gentleman. He will never force himself on you. He will always, always court you, always will wait for you, always be patient with you, always will be kind and gentle with you. As Boaz did for Ruth, Jesus does for us. We have a kinsman redeemer. His name is Jesus. Amen? That is the subplot that is currently taking place in the book of Ruth. But there's more to this story. There's a main plot. This is going to be, I can't wait. The main plot is this. Ruth would become King David's great-grandmother. You're like, cool, Luke. No, no, no. Ruth's destiny was to marry Boaz and introduce the biological bloodline that our Messiah Jesus would eventually come from. How cool is that? Our God knows exactly what he's doing. He is completely and totally and utterly sovereign over his creation. He knows exactly what he's doing in the story of Ruth. He knows exactly what he's doing in your story. So, this is what I propose. I propose we revisit my initial question. What is God's message to the disappointed? Well, I think he says something like this. I think he says... Humanity, a lot of the times you just focus on the pieces. You look at the piece, you look at your life, and you're not pleased, you're not happy with the piece that's right in front of you. You're disappointed because your marriage collapsed. You're disappointed because your job didn't go the way you wanted it to go. You're disappointed because the relational status of your life is not where you want it. You had a bad experience at church and you're about to throw in the towel. Whatever the piece is in your life right now, we obsess over. And I think God says something like this as we see in Ruth. We see the pieces, but God sees the whole picture. Amen? We see the pieces. God sees the picture. And, he's, and, he's, and, he, and, he, and he shows us this in the book of Ruth. He, he shows us that, yes, you, you get obsessed over the pieces. You, you get crazy over the pieces, but I'm in control. I see the whole picture. I know what's going on. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be anxious. You've started to place your faith in you, not me. Right? What happens when we get disappointed? We compensate. We take over. What happens when we feel sadness? We medicate. We figure out ways to feel better. We begin to put the faith that we once had in our almighty God into us. And it never goes well. And right now, I think the church, more than ever, we need to hear, yeah, we, we, we are vulnerable to focusing on the pieces, but God is the one who reveals the whole picture. And if we can remember that he is the one that's in control of assembling our life's puzzle, we are going to be a more faith-filled, more effective church on this planet. The great Richard Rohr, a friar, said, faith is patience with mystery. The reality is, is that our life in front of us is still a mystery. And it requires great patience. Patience is just faith in action. 
All we have to do is remember that we don't get to dictate the outcome of our life. God does that. The reason that Ruth is an MVP of the Old Testament is because her faith led to the ultimate MVP, which is Jesus. I wonder, I wonder if, the, if we can be a people that commits, that commits to asking God to reveal to us the full picture and not obsess over the pieces that we're going to be the kind of people that bring heaven to earth and people all around can see that. Man, faith works when the other five senses don't. Faith works when we don't see. Faith works when we don't hear. Faith works when we don't understand. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Certainty saying, I've got it all figured out. I know exactly what I'm doing tomorrow. I know exactly what I'm doing next week. I know exactly how my life is going to go. I've got it all planned out. I'm sure Ruth did too. But faith is saying, no, I'm going to place it in the God who knows what he's doing. What I didn't tell you is that um, my grandmother's story actually ends pretty, pretty well. After Papa went to heaven... A year later, her high school sweetheart in Wisconsin, after his wife passed away, tracked her down. They got reacquainted. He asked her to marry him. She said yes. And for 11 more years, my grandmother had a husband, and I had a grandfather. You see, God sees the whole picture of our life. It's it's we who see the pieces. So right now, what peace do you need to place into Jesus' hands?